Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. If you're in sales, you know cold calling is stressful, especially when all that effort isn't even leading to sales. It might be time to take a more informed approach. The new LinkedIn Sales Navigator uses data to provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans, unleashing sellers' superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash trial. That's linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who would never be picked to run the White House, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Valerie Jarrett, who is a senior advisor to President Barack Obama while he was in the White House. These days, she's a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation, is on the board of several tech companies, including Lyft, and has just released a new book called Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Jarrett got her start in politics in Chicago, where she worked for mayors Harold Washington and Richard Daley. While serving as Daley's deputy chief of staff, she recruited a young lawyer named Michelle Robinson. She was hot on the idea, but she said to me her fiancé wasn't so hot on the idea when she discussed it with him. <laughs> well, I and I said, well, who's your fiancé? Why do we care what he thinks? And uh-huh. she said, well, his name is Barack Obama, and he started his career as a community organizer, and he's concerned about me going right into the fire. We'll also talk about how Jared felt when she saw Roseanne Barr tweeting racist insults about her last year. Look, I'm fine. I have, right. I'm have. i well-loved. I put myself in the arena. Mm-hmm. I accept the fact that I'm going to get criticism, some of right. which is atrocious and unfair, and some of it might be justified. That's mm-hmm. the nature of it. Right. I'm far more worried about people who do not have the ability to protect themselves. Valerie, welcome to Rico Decode. Thank you. I'm delighted to be we, here. We've talked so many times. Like, we, have we have spoken oh, a fair yes, amount. Yes, a fair amount. So I want, I want to get an idea of, of the book itself and everything else, but just give people the two-second version of what you did at the White House. I know people don't not remember you, but... I oversaw uh, three offices, mm-hmm. the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. Uh, that was managing our relationships with state and local elected officials, all elected officials who were not in Congress, mayors, mm-hmm. governors, et cetera. I oversaw the Office of Public Engagement. That was the gateway through which um, ordinary Americans and, and a whole range of constituency groups could interface with the White House to help us make more informed decisions. And I chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. Mm-hmm. And then senior advisor to the president, he always had three. I was the only one that lasted all eight years in that <laughs> position. And that's really the team that is supposed to review every decision before it gets to the president and then give him the benefit of our best advice. Right. And so you, and you're very close to the Obamas, both I've the Obamas. I've known them now for both right. of them for 28 right, which you years. talk about in this book. Consider them family. So talk a little bit about finding my voice. Why did you call it this? Because I had to find my voice. And when I was a young adult, I uh, didn't listen to the most important voice, and that's the quiet one inside of me. I didn't mm-hmm. trust it. And so I wanted to talk about what I've heard uh, I was not unique. I've heard from so many young people who, when they begin their careers, 
They think that they need to have a direction and a mission, and I kind of made up one because I didn't have a natural passion, and I started my career practicing law in the corporate sector, mm-hmm. and I was kind of craving a straight line rather than having the confidence to appreciate the adventure of the zigzag, the swirl. Mm-hmm. And when I finally made up my mind that I was so miserable, I had to do something right. about my life, both my personal and my and my professional life. I talk about my divorce in the book, mm-hmm. for example. Uh the change of my life for the better. Right, and so I right. want people to to find their voices. And then once you find it, you have to figure out, well, what do you want to do with it? And what do you feel passionately about? And I found advocacy at the local level in government was, um, was my passion. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed public service. I enjoyed seeing the faces of the people whose lives we were trying to help and getting feedback from them about what to do. And so I used my voice to advocate first for other people. Mm-hmm. And then I learned how to advocate for myself, which is also something that's not easy. Right. Absolutely. At least it wasn't easy for me to do. And I think the point, uh, part of the reason why I wanted to tell the story is that sometimes people look at me and they see, not the finished product, because I'm still a work in progress, mm-hmm. but yeah. a person who's 60-something and has right. had an inc- incredible career. advisor to the president. And what I want White them House to understand influencer. is, like, I started out painfully shy. Mm-hmm. I started out in a miserable marriage. I was a single mom. I mean, there's more to me than just what they right. see at the end. And the journey is important. And I'm hoping that it will be useful in people's lives. Right. That they'll see something of themselves and that it will help motivate them to feel a greater sense of ownership about what to do with their voice. Right. Okay. So let's start your, your history, which I, I wasn't aware that you lived in Iran. I don't know why I didn't know born that. Born there. Born there. Talk about that, because that was a really interesting part. You were born outside of this country, um, obviously an American citizen, but how, talk about that, that that difference, because I think it did shape you in a lot it of ways. It did in pretty basic and fundamental ways. So we, uh, my parents ended up in Iran because my father, when he uh, was a physician and when he was coming out of the Army, he wanted to teach at an academic medical center. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't find a job um, equivalent to what his white counterparts coming out of the Army could find here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so my parents were adventuresome spirits, and they decided, well, let's explore other options outside of the United States. And they heard about a position helping to start up this um, hospital in Shiraz, Iran, the Namazi Hospital. Mm-hmm. And they took this adventuresome leap of faith, and they decided, why not? They didn't know anything about the country, this the culture, was, the government. The they just decided yeah. to go off. This and was so in the 60s. This would 50, be, a, well, the the, they left in 55. Yeah, late 50s. And yeah. I was born in 56, so I was right. the second baby born in that hospital. They practiced uh-huh. on some other poor kid first. What did your mom do? My mom taught—she uh, has a master's in education, and so she taught early child development in the nursing school. Mm-hmm. There and there in, as in well. So you, how long were you at Iran? We you were, were there until I was five, and mm-hmm. then we moved to London. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from London, my father was recruited to the University of Chicago Medical Center, huh. a job he couldn't have gotten six years earlier. And so right. what he used to always say to me is sometimes the shortest distance to where you want to go is the longest way around. Mm-hmm. And so he gave me confidence, and what my parents did gave me confidence about this swirl into government. Mm -hmm. But it shaped me in maybe three basic ways. Number one, we lived on a hospital compound with families from all over the world, physicians from all over the world. And I learned at a very early age that I could feel comfortable Mm -hmm. and I could find something in common with children who didn't even share a language with me, let alone a culture. And that 
of all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that shaped my world outlook. It also helped me appreciate which um, something that people who haven't lived outside of the United States often don't appreciate, which is just how fortunate we are here. Mm-hmm. It's everything from clean water and healthy food. My mother had to boil or peel everything that went through my mouth to our civil liberties. And not that we're perfect, but we're a lot better than the rest of the world mm-hmm. in that respect. And then the final thing I learned is, is that the United States might already be the greatest country on earth, it's not the only country on earth, and mm-hmm. that we can learn a lot more outside right, of our right, shores. Right, yeah, yeah. And those well, basic you, facts when, And you live abroad me. at all. When you live abroad in any way, you have that feeling. It, it gives you a broadening yeah. perspective on how we fit mm-hmm. into the greater whole. Right. And I think that's important. Yeah. So you came back. You lived in Chicago. So you grew up in Chicago. I grew up on the south side of south Chicago, Chicago, where my mom was born and raised. Mm-hmm. And so you, you developed life here, and you went pretty honest. Talk about a straight line. You went achievement Central, like you were sort of the hamster on the achievement wheel. I always say that to my kids. I'm like, get off the wheel, get off the wheel, get off the wheel. But there's a lot of kids like that. Like they, they're very achievement oriented. And you did the big law school, big uh, college, um, corporate lawyer. And Why? one day I, because I could, yeah. And it was in a way the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. It was a lot easier to just work hard and and do what everybody else was doing. It's kind of a herd mentality. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in public service, but the law firms came up to the University of Michigan to interview, and mm-hmm. they flew you back, and they wined and dined you, and they made you feel special. That's what they do to get you in the door. Mm-hmm. And it took me longer than it should have. It took me six years to sit, find myself sitting in my office crying one day what, and saying, like, contract? whose life is this? Right. Well, negotiating the, you know, force majeure clauses and mm-hmm. loan agreements was just not what moved me. It does move right. some people. Right. And I don't regret it because what I learned there, the discipline mm-hmm. and the substance enabled me to then go move to the city and work in the law department at a much more senior position than if I had started at the city. Mm-hmm. So it was a useful experience, but it was not fulfilling. And by that point, I was a single mom. I would leave Laura every day and I would say, am I doing something that will actually make her proud of me? Mm-hmm. And the answer was no. And I wasn't even very good at it. Mm-hmm. And I'd sit there and stare at those timesheets and I'd just wonder, <laughs> what did I do yesterday that's yeah. worthy of billing somebody at this astronomical rate? Mm-hmm. And Harold Washington, who'd been, who was the mayor of Chicago, yeah. had just been reelected for his second term. And a good friend of mine had been in his administration, was heading back to his law firm. And he said, you should try it. And these are the words I'll never forget. He said, you'll feel a part of something bigger and more important than yourself. Mm-hmm. And that touched me. And I remember walking into City Hall that first day, and my boss met me at reception, and he took me to my—he went with air quotes, my office, and mm-hmm. it was a cubicle facing an alley compared to the magnificent view I'd had mm-hmm. from a high-rise in Chicago. And I thought, you know what? This is actually where I belong. Mm-hmm. And, so and that's where I found you my had voice. You had done public— Work? None. None. The only exposure, and this is a part of it as well, is Mm -hmm. that uh, I don't—I probably at that point, before Harold Washington was elected, I didn't know my alderman. I probably didn't even know how many wards were in the city. I knew who the mayor was. You weren't political at all. I was not political at all because I was on this kind of blinders straight line. And then when I was working at my law firm, um, my mentor there uh, helped me get into a program called Leadership Greater Chicago where they select uh, young people who they consider to be Mm -hmm. tapped for leadership positions later in life. And they were from the civic community, the arts community, government, Mm -hmm. the suburbs, suburbs. I'd never been Mm -hmm. to a suburb of Chicago. And it began to open my eyes that, you know, there are opportunities outside of this straight line that I had been Mm -hmm. adhering to. And Mm -hmm. it changed my life. 
And so you worked and you got involved in city politics, obviously here in Washington. The the Chicago politics yes. is pretty much the politics of all it politics. It is indeed. And what was how did what did you like about it or not? Did you think about going further? Um, yes, I did. Well, I started out as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mayor Daly, when he was elected mm-hmm. a couple years in, promoted me to deputy chief of staff. I then ran the Department of Planning and Development for four years, which was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And when I left government, I joined the Habitat Company, a mm-hmm. real estate company. There was also the receiver for the Chicago Housing Authority. Mm-hmm. So I worked on all these massive redevelopments of the city. And then also when I left government, Mayor Daly asked me to chair the board of the Chicago Transit Authority. Mm-hmm. And I had always been keenly interested in how public transit improves the fabric of the city and Mm -hmm. fits into the context of urban planning. And so that stretch of my life was just exhilarating. And I moved from being a lawyer, I have to say, I've never looked back, Mm -hmm. uh, and into policy and substance, substantive roles having to do primarily with urban planning. And, And then you meet the Obamas. And when I was deputy chief of staff, Mm -hmm. I recruited Michelle Robinson Mm -hmm. to come and join my team in the mayor's office. That was in 1991, uh, before I became commissioner of planning and development. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was hot on the idea, but she said to me her fiancé wasn't so hot on the idea when she discussed (laughs) it with him. And I said, well, who's your fiancé and why do we care what he thinks? Uh And she said, well, his name is Barack Obama, and he started his career as a community organizer, and he's concerned about me going right into the fire. You Mm -hmm. at least went to the frying pan of the law department. This is strictly political. Mm -hmm. And would you have— Michelle Obama has a a law degree also. Law degree? Excellent. And was practicing law at a law firm. And so part of what drew me to her is that the person— who sent me her resume, mm-hmm. said, great young lawyer, has no interest in being in a law firm, mm-hmm. wants to explore public service. Right. And Similar so, to you. Par- similarly to what had motivated me. And so I, she said, would you have dinner with us to talk about it? Mm-hmm. Which is a little unusual when you're mm-hmm. recruiting somebody to say, yeah. well. But I said, sure. And that was a really smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the the point I would make about it is, is that she cared about his opinion about what she would do with her future because of how they looked at themselves as a unit. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a decision he made in his life where he didn't want her at the table as well. Sure. And so I think it speaks well of their partnership. Mm -hmm. And so talk a little bit, move fast forward of how you got to decide you all wanted to do this incredible journey that you went on, which I think was surprising to everybody. It was surprising, but I will—well, it was surprising. And I often—people often say to me, well, did you know when you met him that he'd be president of the United Mm -hmm. States one day? And I say, when I first met him at that dinner— what I thought was absolutely possible, because I thought there was, he clearly wanted to do public service. Mm-hmm. He was motivated for all the right reasons. And I thought, you know what? Maybe just one day you'll be mayor of Chicago. Mm-hmm. That was the ceiling of how high I could see it going. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. And why? Because well, well, that, that was my life experience. Right, sure. And yeah. I'd seen Harold Washington elected to the mayor, mayor's job, and it just. It didn't occur to me back then that he would even aspire to be president. Mm -hmm. But it was all very natural. And I I would say after he gave the speech at the 2004 convention— Right, big speech. —is really a really big speech. And sitting in the audience, um, I thought—people are connecting to you. People are meeting—you're meeting them where they are in their living rooms, and they can see a piece of themselves in your Mm -hmm. unusual journey. Mm -hmm. And I thought he would be a unifying force. And so it was really at that moment where I thought, we're not done yet. Mm -hmm. And he hadn't even been elected to the Senate. Right. But I thought— Right. I thought the possibility was there. And one of the things that's important is your being this advisor. How how did you move to an advisor status? How do you you think it went? Because you were here—you were doing— a lot of stuff around the city. You could have been a big—you could have been mayor of Chicago. I considered running for mayor yeah. once upon a time. Mm-hmm. 
Well, well, first of all, when the president of the United States asks you to do something— No, I get it. Before he was the president. <laughs> before. Oh, well, because it grew, I think, iteratively out of our friendship and mm-hmm. the fact that I worked on all of his campaigns. I chaired his finance committee when he ran for Senate. And mm-hmm. so, in that sense, friends are always your advisors. Right. And I certainly was a mentor to Michelle mm-hmm. um, Obama as she— both worked at the city, but also right. when she worked at the University of Chicago, I was on the board there. And when she worked at the medical center, I chaired the board. Mm-hmm. So I think our lives were very firmly entwined, both uh, professionally and also socially. Mm-hmm. We lived in the same neighborhood, a block apart when they were first married, and then a mile apart after that. They're right down the street from my parents' home now. Mm-hmm. And so it just was a natural relationship that withstood the test of time. Right. And I right. think that's real friendship where after nearly 30 years, you can say, yes, we, we grew together. Why didn't you run for office? The first I'm always time, interested by people who are facilitators of other people's. Yeah, so the first time I thought about running was um, right before Mayor Daley's third term, and it was unclear whether he would run. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have run against him. Number one, I couldn't have beat him. And number two, because he was my mentor and my friend. Uh, and, but I thought if he had not run, I would have run. And then mm-hmm. when he ran, uh, that's really when I delved deep into President Obama's presidential campaign. And then at this stage, I don't have that fire in my belly. What I really enjoy doing is helping other people run for office. Mm-hmm. And I learned a great deal both in local government and right. two presidential campaigns and countless other uh, campaigns where I've helped uh, people who I believed in. Mm-hmm. And so— I'm really helping, interested in helping that next generation. So why did that interest you? I delight in their success. I mm-hmm. really do. I delight in some, someone like a Lauren Underwood, who I met yep, uh, I when met she her. worked for the federal government and HHS, our Department of Health and Human Services, on this the Affordable Care Act. Now she's a congresswoman. I was mm-hmm. an early supporter of her campaign. And every time I see her on television, my face lights up. And I, I think, well, I knew her when. Mm-hmm. And, and to be able to help somebody like that develop. And I think some of it is age. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm at the stage of my life where— I don't really feel like running for office, and mm-hmm. you shouldn't do it unless you absolutely have right. that fire in right. your belly. And it shouldn't be about you. It should be about service. And I, what, I've, what I've learned over the course of my career is there are lots infinite ways of serving. Mm-hmm. And you don't actually have to be involved in politics to serve. Right. And after eight years in Washington, I think the service part of it is more interesting to me mm-hmm. than the political part of it. Right. And so when I meet, for example, with people who are considering or have already announced that they're running for president, I talk about, well, what do you believe in? And, mm-hmm. you know, why Why do you want to do this? And what motivates you to do it? And and then be honest with the American people about it. Mm-hmm. And that that's what they're hungry for is that kind of leadership. And so being that voice in the room is what I is what, you like. Is what so, I like right so now. We could go through the whole time in office, but how do you, what are your highlights of, of that and the parts that weren't so easy for you? Well, every day was both an honor, an enormous challenge, hardest thing I've ever done, um, and immediately, and it, it just immensely satisfying. And most of the highlights were from observing ordinary people do extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. We had, for example, within my 
Division of Public Engagement, we had something called Champions of Change, Mm -hmm. where we scoured the country just looking for people who were making a difference on the ground in their communities. And then we celebrated them at the White House. And it seems like such a simple thing. And like, Mm -hmm. who would really want that? My goodness, their local newspapers would go, you know, you're one of President Obama's champions of change. And Mm -hmm. to to see what they're what's happening, the magic that's happening on the ground, I found very satisfying. Mm -hmm. I think the work that we did around gender equity uh, mm-hmm. through the Council on Women and Girls that's now become the United State of Women is very important to me. Uh, having been a young single mom with resources and support and everything going for me, I still felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And so being an advocate for mm-hmm. working moms who are doing two shifts of a minimum wage job and leaving their children in circumstances that they don't think are safe and not getting equal pay and not having any flexibility and not having benefits like paid leave and paid sick days, all of which I had and I still struggled, those are the people who I really would like to advocate for now. And the work we did around working families at the in the White House I thought was important. And one of the paradigm shifts we tried to do is to say, look, don't just do this because it's good for women. Do this because it is a business imperative. It's good for our economy. It's good for our country. If we want to be globally competitive, to be able to attract and retain the most diverse talent possible. Mm -hmm. And that takes intentionality. Right. And you have to be purpose-driven and you have to measure it. And people have to be held accountable if they let it slip. And if you just simply do it as a nice-to-do, that when the economy gets tough or your business gets challenged, it's the first thing you cut. I want it to be a part of the business plan. And so I have enjoyed um, seeing traction around that. And more and more companies are recognizing how important it is and then holding themselves out as a good place to do business for, you know, for working families. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that was valuable. So when you had these eight years, which was unprecedented to be elected twice in this way, especially an African-American man being president of the United States, a big deal, things changed. Were you—have you been surprised by the change? And we'll talk about that in the next section. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, elections have consequences. Mm -hmm. I supported Hillary Clinton. I thought that she would continue much of the important work that President Obama had worked so hard for. And many of the work that was unfinished, we felt comfortable that she would uh, work hard to attend to. And so, no, this has been a very fundamental shift, but elections have consequences. We're here with Valerie Jarrett, whose new book is called Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. After a quick break, we'll talk about the state of politics and social media in the Trump era and a racist tweet about Jarrett that got comedian Roseanne Barr fired last year. We'll also talk about why she joined the boards of tech companies like Lyft. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. It's hard to make great decisions when you have lousy information. It's even harder when you don't have any information at all. LinkedIn can help you overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality data into dynamic insights so you can make better choices. They call it deep sales. Their next-generation LinkedIn sales navigator is the first deep sales platform. With 950 million-plus members, 
LinkedIn is able to access high-quality, first-party comprehensive data on companies and buyers. The LinkedIn Sales Navigator can provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans, unleashing seller superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash trial. That's linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. We're here with Valerie Jarrett, who is very famous. She was senior advisor to President Barack Obama, and now she's uh, working on a whole bunch of things, including being a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation, and she's author of a new book called Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Uh, let's talk about the path present. With the changes that happened, You had a, there was that famous picture of you all, and you're in the middle of it, um, this incredibly diverse group of people looking so depressed uh, on in the in the portico there, right? In the, it in, was the day after the, the 2016 election, right? Yes, it was, was soul crushing. I think is the word I use. Yeah, but the picture was just everything. Yeah, one photograph tell, told yeah, the whole story, told plus the, story. the diversity of the people in the group, which was really President Obama had surrounded himself with a group of advisors that reflected the diversity of our country. How do you explain it, and what are your thoughts since? After a lot of thought. And going through the natural stages of grief, sometimes mm-hmm. all in the same day, mm-hmm. I think where I come out is I'm concerned about the fact that we could have an election as important as the presidential election and 43 percent of our country didn't vote. Mm-hmm. And so much of the work that I've been doing across the last couple of years is around civic engagement. So last summer, uh, Mrs. Obama and I formed uh, an organization called When We All Vote. Mm-hmm. And it's nonpartisan. Our intention is to just remind people about what their civic responsibility is. And the most fundamental and basic is to vote and participate and mm-hmm. find out who's running for office and make sure that they reflect your values and try to increase the number of people who turn out to vote. So I'm troubled that in this era, there are so many people, particularly young people, who are shunning all institutions, mm-hmm. and they create their own community in the palm of their hand on their device. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not how democracy works. Sure. I just was having a discussion with my son who will be voting in the 2020 election. He was. We were talking about the various candidates. He's met some of them, too. Mm-hmm. He's lucky enough to be able to have met some of them. And he's like, I don't know if I'm going to vote sometimes. I'm like, oh, no. You have to vote. I was like, literally, if you'd like to keep both arms non broken. But did he say why he didn't? Well, I think he felt like he couldn't make a difference. Like, I think that was real. It was a, what's the difference? One vote doesn't matter. Yeah, it was one, I think it was after the Miller thing. He's like, what's the difference? It's all fixed. You know what I mean? It's the cynicism. You know, and this is a 16 year old who reads widely and does have, you know, have parents who are very attuned. But if if you think about the last election, Mm -hmm. presidential election, Hillary Clinton lost in three states by less than 100,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And we used to, on the campaign trail for Barack Obama, talk about individual precincts where it could have been like four-vote difference. So every mm-hmm. vote does actually matter. And not just does your vote well, matter. In this, but, in this world, because it's so it's so the sides are so strongly against each other. But the only so way that changes right. is if— we, the American people, decide we want something different. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went into Washington, for example, trying very hard to get Republicans to come and work with us. But I think what they assessed is that it wasn't in their political interest to get caught working with us. Mm-hmm. And that 
that's dysfunctional. You can't have that in a big democracy the size of ours that's as diverse as it is. You have to be willing to compromise. You have to be willing to look for that common ground. You can't just simply say, my way or the highway. What could you all have done differently? Because that was from the get-go. Well, you know what? I think part of the challenge was that we were operating in good faith that if we just kept reaching out and we tried to explain to them logically why they should, why Mm -hmm. if we embraced, say, the Affordable Care Act, which was modeled after Governor Romney's Mm -hmm. um, law in Massachusetts, you know, a bipartisan law, that if we did that, that that would um, require them to come and participate. And we kept saying, well, when will the fever break? Mm -hmm. When will they understand that that it is in their self-interest? And I think what they were banking on and what you've seen them try to do in several states is to actually suppress the vote. Mm -hmm. And they were probably delighted that that 43% Mm -hmm. didn't come out and have their votes counted or didn't even participate. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's not democracy. We shouldn't have people celebrating or opposing laws that make it easier to vote. And this whole notion of vote fraud is preposterous. There is just no evidence Mm -hmm. of vote fraud that would justify the kinds of laws we've seen in states Mm -hmm. that are designed, frankly, to ensure that young people and people of color don't participate in the democracy. And the only way that I can do something about that and feel empowered is to go out and talk about the importance of voting. Mm -hmm. And we, um, through our organization, work collaboratively with a whole range of organizations on the ground. The Parkland young people, for example, Mm -hmm. traveled the country last summer encouraging people to vote around this issue of reducing gun violence. Mm -hmm. And they didn't just go to blue states. They went to red states. They would go outside of their um, event and talk to the demonstrators. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of behavior I think the adults around our country should be modeling. Mm -hmm. And that's not the environment that we're currently in. So what could you all have done differently? Because sometimes I think, how did this shift so quickly? You know what I mean? Was it festering there, or did you not listen to this other part of the country that was angry? No, we engaged broadly. And if you look at the policies that President Obama put in place, they were designed to address the needs of people who feel like they're struggling. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I remind you, or you know this, so your listeners, that when President Obama took office, we were in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. We're losing 750, 800,000 jobs a month. The unemployment rate had skyrocketed, and he cut that in half under his watch. And so we, but I say that to say we were going through a really tough time, and the uncertainty Mm -hmm. that came with millions of people losing their jobs, millions of people losing their homes really upset the fabric of our country. People Mm -hmm. who wanted to know that their children would be better off than they were now had their adult children living in their basement and wondering, will I be able to retire with dignity? Another good example is I can remember we were um, trying very hard to get a range of constituencies to support what we wanted to do to make college more affordable, making community colleges free for the first couple of years. I talked to the head of AARP, and I said, this is AARP. This is maybe not your issue, but we'd love your support. And the head of it said to me at the time, oh, no, you don't understand how many of our members have college debt. Mm -hmm. Here you've worked your whole life, and you've retired, and you're still paying back your student loans. Mm -hmm. And so what I say that is, like, that's one of many policies that were really designed to Mm -hmm. help the people who seem to feel left out. I think some of this has to do with— the influx of social media. When I was growing up, whatever Walter Cronkite said once a day, that was the law, right? And now you have a blurring of the lines between news and editorial and entertainment. 
And it's also no longer a loss leader. People didn't used to make money off of the news when I was growing up. Now sure. it's big business. Right. And so you have a, a misalignment of interests. And so people like to see a food fight as, appo- as opposed to, and what's the implication of their moral equivalence? Well, maybe, no, maybe one person's actually right factually and the other person's wrong. And we don't have a mechanism in this new media environment. And I don't mean just social media, but I mean this environment of entertainment to just say this is fact. Mm-hmm. And what we've learned is that repetition, even of facts that are untrue, mm-hmm. does begin to sink in. It does. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when we first heard, um, well, two things, either the birther movement or that President Obama was a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Well, we thought, well, who would believe that? Obviously, he was born in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. He's a Christian. Why would somebody believe something like that? Well, you know what? Because they just repeated it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, the current president, actually. we Yeah, well, led the birth of the movement. Right. So we weren't really prepared for that, mm-hmm. I think. And Was that a mistake? Did you not see that this was well, We should have—I think we should have seen better just how diabolical the strategy was mm-hmm. to try to hold on to the status quo. I and mean, look, we knew change was hard. And, you know, people who kind of romance the notion of hope and change— if you listen to President Obama's remarks, he talked about the grit and hard work and resilience of change and how mm-hmm. you don't it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. You think it's you know when the Supreme Court comes down and upholds marriage equality, you think it's a thunderbolt mm-hmm. until you remember the decades of people who worked on marriage sure. equality state by state by state going from right. two when he first took office to 37 in the District of Columbia and how that cultural shift actually does influence policy and the law. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe uh, we should have been a little bit more aware of what the impact of this new environment might be. But we thought if we played it straight, that that we would be doing the people's work. And Mm -hmm. I'm proud of the fact that President Obama did continue to reach out, and he did try to break that fever, if you will. And I was just stunned to see how politicians were so willing to put those short-term political interests ahead of what was good for their country. And the only way that changes is if the American people demand it. The Mm -hmm. only reason why we don't have sensible gun laws now to keep guns out of the wrong hands Mm -hmm. with this epidemic we have of gun violence, both, and, you know, of the 30-plus thousand people who die each year, two-thirds commit suicide. We've just seen the last few weeks evidence of that. And— it only changes when we, the people, right, we say that, demand you, you, it. You use the term diabolical and fever, that it's not, but it hasn't. It hasn't backed off. And you yourself were the subject of it with uh, Roseanne Barr saying those terrible things about you, which should come as no surprise to anyone who watches Roseanne Barr tweet. She's really quite, does a lot of unhinged kind of quotes. What was your reaction when you saw that? Because that took off. And by the way, there were a lot of bots involved in making it even worse. You know, there, Well, this is, this is the thing. Is, is it she right said something in, awful. But it's symptomatic of a bigger problem. And mm-hmm. I guess that's what I try to get to the heart of is like, when are we going to get to the point where we can disagree without being disagreeable? Mm-hmm. When are we going to get past issues where we focus on our differences as opposed to what we have in common? And I think, unfortunately, social media allows um, a veil of anonymity mm-hmm. where people say perfectly dreadful things to each well, other. Well, that wasn't dreadful. How did you feel when that? Did you see it? Did someone alert you to it? I was alerted to it through the press, but mm-hmm. you know, look, I'm fine. I have, right. I'm well loved. I put myself in the arena. Mm-hmm. I accept the fact that I'm going to get criticism, some of right. which is atrocious and unfair, and some of it might be justified. That's mm-hmm. the nature of it. Right. 
I'm far more worried about people who do not have the ability to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And I worry that we're getting in the habit of talking at each other Mm -hmm. on social media rather than to one another. And I believe that life is about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I believe that when we are appealing to our greater good, when we are looking for what we have in common, when we are solving problems by listening to people who have differences of opinions with us, we actually make better decisions. And that you can change your mind from time to time. Mm -hmm. And I think the environment that we're in right now makes it hard to do that. And so I do believe the way to break the fever is when the American people decide to demand it. Well, how do you do that when the case, I mean, here here she, for example, in your experience, she's on a social media, she's mad. And so she says something perfectly awful. And then it whips around and gets her. She gets fired. There's all kinds of repercussions for what she said. It didn't, it's not like she didn't pay for it. But that's what happens. It creates this sort of terrible thing, reaction, payment, terrible thing, react. You know, it goes in a circle. I mean, I, I can't imagine that's the what you thought would happen over I just I didn't some- really give it that much thought right. because I'm too busy thinking about, like, right. are we going to lose health care for all anything. Americans? You also didn't say anything. No, I you. didn't because yeah. it's it becomes— I don't want to be the story. I want to put the spotlight on things that are important that Mm -hmm. we should all be focusing on. And you shouldn't get sucked into that vortex. And Mm -hmm. I I don't, that's not how I operate. I would much rather keep the spotlight where it should be, where people who are committing themselves to service should never make the story about themselves. Mm -hmm. They should make the spotlight go on issues that count. I mean, just... But the I mean, uses of social, you can't, like you're saying, was we should have paid more attention to it. It has more power than ever. Like President Trump uses it daily. He uses it 20 times very, today. It can be a powerful tool for good. Mm-hmm. And I think the Parkland young people are a good example of how they use social media mm-hmm. to, you know, motivate the country to turn out in record numbers for March for Our Lives, where we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of rallies around the country, including here in our nation's capital. Mm-hmm. And and they would not have been able to galvanize all of that without social media. Right. But it also can be used for force for bad. And you're right. When you throw in bots and all of the, all of the ways that you can manipulate it, it's hard to control. And so we're... And we're in the midst of it. We're in the midst of this technological revelation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, it's hard to get ahead of it. It's hard to say, like, how do we How do you suggest, if you were still in office, because obviously this administration is not going to do anything. It's benefiting from the chaos that that social media creates, I think. Um, How would you deal with it now? Because you all didn't do any regulation on these platforms. There has been none. Not so far. And I think one Did you think about it at the time? We we did, but I you think it was Google, premature. Passed, yeah. I mean, a lot of what's come out in the last two years, obviously mm-hmm. we didn't have the benefit of that mm-hmm. at the time. And, I mean, one of the things I have said when I've been uh, with tech companies is be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Help us, us, those who are in regulatory roles, to figure out, like, what can we do to minimize the harm? I mean, isn't that what— Public You're on the board of, um, I'm on the board of Lyft yeah. and also on the board of two, to public, two tech companies. Right? And I joined the boards of the three companies that I'm on, Aerial Investments as well, because I have confidence in the CEOs and their mission and their values. Mm-hmm. And I associate myself with companies where I feel that uh, I, share, I have those shared values. And I think... I think what we need is greater civic responsibility, both from individuals who, as you mentioned about your own son, don't Mm -hmm. feel empowered, as well as from businesses who recognize that they have to take the long view. And right now in this environment, whether it's quarterly earnings or whether it's social media, it's so 
easy to get caught up in the 24-hour cycle, mm-hmm. as opposed to recognizing that big problems mean you've got to be able to look down into the future. Mm-hmm. And I encourage people who are in policy roles now to to try to be mindful of the, of the long-term vision. There were missed opportunities on our watch where we could have solved some big, big problems if the Republicans hadn't been trying to score kind of small political points. With, with the Internet companies. Right now, if you were advising, if President Obama was still president, what would you do now? What would you what would I you think suggest? they should think about how to minimize harm. And they're going to be—I used to say this, frankly, with the banks. I'd say, mm-hmm. look, you're spending a lot of money on lobbyists to oppose Dodd-Frank. Why don't you think about—do some honest introspection of what, what you might have done differently that might have prevented millions of people from losing their homes and their jobs and the— huge amount of um, taxpayer-funded money that had to infuse to stabilize our financial markets. Mm-hmm. Why don't you think about what you could have done differently? And why don't you be a part of the solution? Because I think regulation will come. And the question is, will there be unintended consequences? The question will be, does it solve the problem? Does it actually address the issue? And having the smartest minds who created these companies being a part of the solution. And and that's not, to me, the fox guarding the chicken hen. It's saying, Mm -hmm. be proactive and recognize that in this new world, we still should be committed to minimizing harm Mm -hmm. and being forces for good. So so far, they haven't been proactive except recently. Like, look, this today is Facebook finally decided white supremacy perhaps is not such a great thing on their platform, which to me is sort of you know, shocking that it took so long. Well, you have this tension between mm-hmm. privacy mm-hmm. and social good and, and safety mm-hmm. and uh, trying to prevent misdeeds. I mean, you've got all of these perfectly valid public policies that sometimes butt heads against each other. And and we should be willing to roll up our sleeves and really kind of noodle through it and figure out. And I don't have the magic bullet. I'm not sure there isn't even one magic bullet. And it also has to keep evolving mm-hmm. because let's face it, if you just look at um, cybersecurity, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, the amount of money that companies and government were spending on cybersecurity was a fraction of what they're spending now. Right. And the bad guys get better and better. And so you've got to keep ahead of the bad guys, too, right? Right. And we focus on what might have happened in our last election. Well, we should be thinking about what we're going to do to preserve the integrity of our next election. Because if the American people start to lose confidence in in our rule of law or our democracy or our election process— then you don't have a democracy anymore. Mm-hmm. And then when people opt out, it's hard to be critical. Right now I can say, no, opt in, opt in, get involved. Right. The only way that there is a stranglehold of investment in the status quo. Mm-hmm. The only way you change that is when ordinary people find their voices and recognize the power that they have individually and collectively. And I've seen one person change a room, change a city, change a state, change a country. Mm-hmm. And the power of that one voice is something that we don't talk enough about. No, but, I mean, you can talk a lot about it, but it takes them a while to change. I mean, I, I feel just myself, I've been yelling at them for two years about this issue around hate speech and the impact it has and the abuse of the system and stuff like that. And I don't necessarily find them to be malevolent people, and you've had some, you know, encounters with them. With many. But it's, it's, it's more they just don't do anything. And so, ultimately, government has to move in and do something about it. Well— I don't know First, another choice. Like, I, I'm trying to figure out that if you can't get them to understand. Change takes time. 
people have business models that have worked for them and they've been successful and it takes a minute to realize, oh, my goodness, I need to relook at this and Mm -hmm. figure out if there is ways that I can improve upon it. And pressure is important. I think the pressure that you and many others have been putting on to force innovation is important. And I think regulation is is the role of government. That's what they're there to do is to regulate in a way that's appropriate. All I'm arguing for is I want them to make informed regulations. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm concerned that the level of um, of familiarity with technology isn't perhaps what it should be among the members who would be doing the regulations. And (laughs) so we should all be trying to educate them. Some of them are more than you think. It's it's absolutely not a homogenous group, Mm -hmm. but we need everybody to be up to speed. We need them to be making sophisticated, complicated, informed decisions. Can I ask you, why did you join Lyft? I'm just, why did you join that board? Um, Because I'm sure you had your pick of boards. I was very impressed both with Logan Green and John Zimmer, the Mm co-founders. I like the fact that they came at it from the perspective of how do we improve the urban environment fundamentally? How do we use transportation as a way of getting people to let go of their love affair with their cars Mm -hmm. and make the ease of transportation better because that fundamentally improves the quality of life. And when I was both the commissioner of planning and the chair of the Chicago Transit Authority board, I looked at transportation in the context of the urban environment and how we could strengthen it improve it and get people out of their cars and back to enjoying their life. And I thought that those two guys got that. And I thought that they have um, a strong commitment to diversity and to supporting um, social justice and a really strong business plan. Are you ready for the IPO? Well, you know, I can't even talk about that. (laughs) I know that. I was going to ask you, Valerie. We're here with Valerie Jarrett, whose new book is called Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. We're going to take another quick break now, but after this, we'll talk about the aftermath of the 2016 election and what the path forward looks like for Jarrett, the 2020 Democratic candidates, and the whole country. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Valerie Jarrett. She obviously was the senior advisor to President Barack Obama, and now she's written a book called Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. We've been talking about a wide range of things, including her own uh, history and also where we are with tech. Um, 
So what what is the path forward from your perspective? Where are we right now? It seems like, look, the Mueller report. Any thoughts? No. Look, when I left the White House, I spent some time doing some soul searching mm-hmm. to, about what to do in my next chapter of my life. And I turned 60 the week after the election, and that's a pretty big yes, number. it is. And I've always had a job since I was 16. I've worked at least part-time. And this is the first time in my life where I thought, well, I've had the best job in the world. I don't really want a job, but what Mm -hmm. do I want to do? What do I care about? What are the issues that move me? And uh, they were pretty easy to identify because they're ones that I've spent a lot of time on over the course of my career. And I thought, well, let me dedicate myself to that. And let me not spend a lot of time fretting over things that I have no control over Mm -hmm. because I don't find that terribly healthy for me. And so I care a lot about gender equity. I care a lot about reducing gun violence. I care a lot about reforming our criminal justice system, and I care a lot about getting people civically engaged. And so I I have affiliated myself with institutions that support those core missions from the United State of Women to When We All Vote to joining the faculty at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, to helping President Obama with the Obama Foundation. And so I try to keep myself focused on that. That's not to say I don't watch television, um, and I'm not aware of what's going on in current events, but the focus of my attention has to be on being a force for good. Right. And I leave it to others to be the pundits. Is it disheartening, though? Because a lot of it's like the Obamacare thing yesterday, the the not defending the thing. Does it feel like you've done all this work and then— Oh, well. You know, I get asked that a lot, and people go, oh, my gosh, you spent eight years there, and you work so hard. Mm -hmm. You must feel particularly bad. No, what I feel bad isn't about my hard work. Mm -hmm. What I feel bad about is that person right now with a pre-existing condition Mm -hmm. wondering whether or not they're going to end up in bankruptcy because they're going to lose their health care, or the young people who want to go out and start a new business, and then they think, well, I'm not going to be able to get Uh, insurance on the exchange, and so I'm going to be gambling with my life. Or parents with sick kids who know that their kids are going to grow up um, without the ability to get insured. And so I look at what's happening, not in the context of what it does Mm -hmm. to my life, but what it does to the millions of people around our country who are going to be hurt. If you look about the rollbacks in the environmental protection arena, walking away from the climate um, accord that we struck with nearly 200 countries from across the world who all agreed climate change is a problem, and now we're suddenly rolling all of that back. So it's disturbing for me because of the impact it's going to have on people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I am very worried about that, but I also was mindful of the fact that elections have consequences. And so the only way to reverse that trend isn't for me to fret about a Mueller report, but it's for me to get out there and organize people to appreciate the power of their vote, the power of their participation, and that's the only way to change so how the does status that change? quo. Because that's you know I've been talking to people a lot lately about that. About I'm talking to Stacey Abrams; she's doing Fair Fight, yes. all kinds of things like that. How do you get people in that mode? Because one of the ways is voting online. Voting on how do you imagine those things are going to go forward? We should revolutionize the way we vote, and we. But in order to do that, we have to care who our secretary of state is. Mm-hmm. And one of the efforts that we have with the United States of Women is edu- – not the United States of Women, when we all vote – is to remind people about the fact that all elections have consequences, not just who the president of the United States is. Our elections are run by state government through mm-hmm. the secretary of state's office. Mm-hmm. And most people couldn't name their secretary of state. And that's the person who – 
as they prepare their budget, determines whether they invest in technology that makes it easier to vote or whether, as is the case in Georgia, the person who was running against Stacey Abrams, Mm -hmm. who tried to put through a law that made it much harder for people to vote. Right. And And effectively, apparently. Well, effectively, even though the courts rebutted the law Mm -hmm. um, twice. Uh, But those kind of um, sinister acts that make it harder for people to vote have to be challenged. And it's only the people in those states who can challenge them. If you see your secretary of state has made it impossible for you to vote early, and so let's say you're working in a factory and your shift is what it is and you don't have a day off and then you can't manage the childcare, and so you miss your opportunity to vote, you should be challenging your secretary of state to say, why don't I have early vote? Why can't I vote online? Why not a day off for vote? Why don't I have a day off to vote? Why don't I have an opportunity to maximize my oppor- my potential to vote, not suppress it? And so that accountability that I'm talking about mm-hmm. can only come from the people. And they have to, and look, look, I get it. People look at government now and they just think, you know, it's sausage and it's loud people yelling at each other about issues and, and they're worried about what's going to happen in their lives. And what we have to do is help them see the nexus between their life and what is happening by the people who are elected to represent them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that nexus isn't as strong as it should be. So I'm interested in So what are the big topics them. for the for among Democrats? Are you are you politically involved right now? Are you going to be I have met with several of the candidates who are running for office. I've offered them my best advice. I've encouraged them to keep the long view, which is not beating each other up so badly that they go into the general election wounded because I think we need to take back the White House. Uh, and I think we have an embarrassment of riches among the candidates. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of not just a lot of them no, in I numbers, know. but in quality. Yeah, different, very different people. Do you, what is the strategy if you were, you know, you ran two presidential elections. What is your version of the strategy? Is just picking topics like health care or privacy or whatever it might be. You know, Elizabeth Warren's done this big proposal a about. A very impressive proposal. Really right. sound policy work, yes. Right, right. But some of them, like the breaking apart all the technology companies, that's quite bold. It's also not agreed with by a lot of people in tech and others. I think people should put their ideas out there. I give Elizabeth Warren credit for having done some homework and come up with a straw man. And I know her well enough to know that she's interested and curious about solutions and not wedded to just one plan. Sure. And so I think what people want to see you do is to be authentic and honest and show them tangibly that you have their best interests at heart. And I think that notwithstanding the current climate, that the people who ultimately rise to the top in the Democratic Party are going to be people who build a big tent, an inclusive tent, recognize that we're not monolithic, that we have room for lots of different opinions. That's part mm-hmm. of the magic of the Democratic Party. We don't necessarily all fall in line with one it's another. It's also one of the detracted. They, they, it, they do but, fall in the line over there. And they do. They do. But I think we celebrated diversity yeah. of ideas with common values. Mm-hmm. And I think you can have both. So I think it's premature for me to guess where this may go, but I'm heartened by the quality of people who want to put their name in the hat. What are the big issues, do you think, in this next election? I think the economy is always front and center. Mm-hmm. I think um, health care. Well, the economy is good. So. The economy is good, but, it's, but as you know, there are predictors that the mm-hmm. economy might not be good for that mm-hmm. much longer. And so right. what are we doing today to anticipate what happens if there is a tightening um, coming down the line? What are we going to do to make sure that we have affordable uh, health care available for mm-hmm. all Americans? And and if there are 
changes that are made to the Affordable Care Act, how do we ensure that they're strengthening it, not weakening it? Sure. I'm troubled by the fact that the number of uninsured has gone up in the last couple of years after having stayed down, um, having declined under, under our watch. I think we have to be concerned about climate change. Mm-hmm. We have to recognize 100%. the fact. We can't throw up our hands and say there's nothing we can do about it. Every bold idea that has ever been implemented in our country when it was first presented, people thought, well, that's going to never happen. It always seems impossible until it's inevitable. And so I think we need we need the moonshots, but we also need a path to the moonshot. And along that path, we have to be flexible. The other thing I think our candidates have to do is they have to listen. They have to, which is part of the magic of Iowa, mm-hmm. is that it's very retail-oriented. Mm-hmm. And you have to sit around a table, not at a big rally, but with like six people, and actually listen to what's happening in the lives of those people to ensure that your policies— reflect their needs. Right. How do you look, uh, last thing I want to finish up, two more things, the new crap of congresswomen, the uh, phenomena that some people are married to Obama, Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, um, but also Underwood. There's a whole bunch of them, but she's, uh, Cortez is, uh, Ocasio-Cortez is pretty much the big name. How do you look at something like that? You know, she has the Green New Deal, which yeah. is a I, big I, idea. I give her credit for a big idea. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, look, part of, the courage of putting an idea out there is recognizing that it's going to be tested and it's going to be challenged. And, and uh, the magic of social media now is that you don't have a lot of mo- you don't need to have any money to put your idea out there. You right. just put it out there yeah. and let people debate its merits. And mm-hmm. so I think we should be encouraging those big ideas and we mm-hmm. shouldn't just be setting up a structure in Washington where they're extinguished um, upon first sighting. Right. It took seven presidents to pass the Affordable Care Act. Right. Seven presidents tried to do something bold. We're still in immigration. We're still— Well, well, and there's a lot we're still waiting to do. But I would say that also when Medicare was first passed, it was seemed, you know, enormous. When Social Security was first passed, it was overwhelming. Change takes time. People have to get used to it. They have to realize that it's going to improve their lives. And there is a normal, healthy skepticism about change, even change which you think might be for the better. And I think part of the job of those who get in the arena and run for office is to appreciate there is understandable skepticism about government. Do you think that we then will be having politicians who are personalities? That I mean, you've got—that's what's happened. Like, look— I think that part of leadership is substance and Mm -hmm. part of it is inspiration. Mm -hmm. And I think you need both to actually have a positive impact. You can't simply be show. There has to be some underlying policy and thought behind it. And the advantage of the um, campaign for a president and for every other office is is that there is time Mm -hmm. for the willing to really explore where they where the candidates stand on issues. Right. And what's their track record that would let you believe that, that they, they could actually implement things. what they're espousing. Right. Um lastly, finishing up some of the in your book you have a lot of concepts you want to talk about of how what you've learned. Can you give me five or three or four things you think they're critically important that you were trying to impart to especially young people. I think you were aiming, especially young women um, that you were trying to get yeah. through. Well, um So one I already mentioned, which is that have the courage to 
get outside your comfort zone and embrace the adventure of the swerve. Mm -hmm. And the zigzag that happened in my life, in retrospect, made perfectly good sense. But at the time, it was terrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, at every new opportunity that came along, they never seemed to come at opportune moments. And they always terrified me. And I always wondered, well, will I be able to step up? And I want people to relax and just enjoy that sense of adventure and the mm -hmm. exhilaration of when you finally make the leap just what it can do to change your life. Mm -hmm. Another thing, and this is perhaps particularly to young um, working moms, mm -hmm. is that I used to think when I was younger, when I was convinced I was superwoman, mm -hmm. just knew I was superwoman, mm -hmm. that if um, the reason why I was struggling was because I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't efficient enough, I wasn't organized enough, I, if, um, if I'd slept fewer hours, maybe, just maybe it wouldn't have been so hard. And what I want to say, and you know this too, it's hard work raising mm -hmm. children and having a career. Even if you have everything going for you, it's still hard. And I encourage young um, working parents, and I'm delighted to see so many men take a much more active role in mm -hmm. raising their children. Uh, I'm delighted when I see companies who offer both paternity and maternity leave on par, right. not one week for the guy and six months for the woman. Mm -hmm. No, we need to have equal. It sends a signal about how important it is for our young men to get involved in their children's lives too. But I want them to stop pretending that it's easy. Pretending the parents, well, to me, I Because we do a disservice. Care. If yeah. we, if, uh, you know, I, I was like, oh no, I've got it. I've got everything together. I don't mm -hmm. need any help. I, I, I've got this. And I pretended it to myself and I pre pretended it to my friends. And I think what's better about your generation is that everybody's like, no, this is really hard. I mm -hmm. need some help. And I need my employer to recognize that it's hard. I was so try, trying to be like all the other guys. Mm hmm. When I was nine months pregnant, sitting in a conference room trying to close a deal, and I kept, you'll appreciate that, I kept getting up to leave. And I'd say, oh, yeah, I'm going yeah. to the Xerox machine. I'm going to go and, you know, bathroom. check my phone. <laughs> going to the bathroom because that's what you do when you're eight and a half yes, months pregnant. Too. And, I mean, in my book, I talk about menopause. Yeah. I think we should stop feeling like there are subjects like that that are taboo. It's a natural part of the aging process, and women go through it. And yet mm -hmm. we don't talk about it. And I try to talk about it with humor, mm -hmm. but it is— um, I just want to kind of like pull back the patina of um, subjects that we just try to ignore. Well, most of them are related to women, but go ahead. <laughs> Good luck. Well, because the workforce has been so historically dominated by men, but, but now women, but now women comprise half the workforce. We're going to college in greater well, it's, numbers. It's one of these long past time things. I mean, come on. Like the same thing with Facebook and white supremacy. I'm like, please, really? Long you just discover. Time, but I think what I what. Part of my message, and I would say this to you too, is that we can't be discouraged because it's taken two years to affect mm -hmm. change. Change just takes much longer than it should. And when it finally comes about, it always seems like, wow. But you ignore the decades of work that, that went into See, it. See, Valerie, that's why you're in policy and I'm in annoying yellingness. That's what but I do. keep <laughs> nudging from the outside. We need I, nudgers. I could, yeah, I could, this is why I couldn't be involved because I'd be like, now. I'd be like, I'd, I'd want to go the fascist route. Well, you, like, well, you this have is to what have, we shall do. You have to have the, fir the fierce urgency of now. Coupled with an enormous amount of patience. I guess. I just think if I was, you know, if I were you and watched this whole drum thing, I'd be like, ah, oh, crap. Like, this is just, are you kidding me after all that work? Well, you know what? You do the best you can I when know. you have the baton. And then you That's try why to— That's why you're senior advisor to the president. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm 
be like, oh, crap, Jesus. I'd run out on the lawn, the White House lawn, and scream and stuff like that. That wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> well, that's why you do what you do, and yeah, I, I do guess. what I do. I, though it's appropriate in the current administration, I could certainly do that and <laughs> do that and stuff like that. Anyway, Valerie, I really appreciate you being here. I hope to talk to you more soon. Thank um, you. Good luck on the Lyft IPO. That's what, Friday or something soon. I'm hoping to talk to those guys soon once they can talk again. Anyway, she's the author of a new book, Valerie Jarrett. She's a senior advisor to President Barack Obama. She's the senior advisor of the Obama Foundation and the author of a new book called Finding My Voice, The Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks to you all for listening. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Valerie, where can you find you online? You can find me at Valerie Jarrett. Valerie Jarrett. Okay. <laughs> yes, on Twitter. But she will not respond if you call her names. I will respond on her behalf. Now that you're done with this, go ahead and check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday, too. Tune in then. Hey, everyone. This is Kara Swisher. You may know me as the person Donald Trump calls Kara Podcast, but in my spare time, I talk tech here on Recode Decode. Every week since 2015, we've been bringing you candid conversations with the most important people in tech and media. And now we're doing a survey to learn more about you and what you've liked. Your answers will help us plan the future of Recode Decode to better serve you. So please, if you have a few minutes today, take the Recode Decode survey at recode.net slash pod survey. That's recode.net slash pod survey. Thanks so much.